Um, we believe it's a fun time to gather with us. Uh, the Lord is just doing great things. He continues to be incredibly faithful to us. But we've basically begun a new journey um, starting last week. And if you've been with us for any period of time, you know that we really love to preach through Scripture. We want you to become a lover of God's Word. Like, that is our deepest heartbeat. Our deepest heartbeat is not that we would entertain you or that you would, hey, look, this is the first church that never put me to sleep or any of those things. Like, we just want you to love God's Word. And so we love to teach and preach through it. We've been through 12 or so full books of the Bible in our existence, and we're starting another one. We last week started the book of Romans. And I mentioned a couple of things that I'm going to mention again this morning for those of you that may not be here. And then after today, we're going to just kind of move past them. And I'm going to encourage you that if you didn't, you know, uh, catch one of those two fir- first few weeks, you could go back and jump online. All these messages from the beginning of time um, are available online. In fact, Austin told me not too long ago that he started back in 2010 and just started listening to all the old ones. He's like, you've come a long way, my man. Um, So that's, I guess, encouragement, but it's all there. If you want to go hear the early days um, of me just begging you to show up, it's there. Um, But we, they're all there. So go back and take a listen. Let me give you a couple of quick things. Um, I told you last week that Romans is, a, is probably going to be one of the most difficult preaching adventures in, I've ever kind of embarked on in 28 years of doing ministry. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but the main ones are simply this. Romans is a challenging book because it's not really laid out to be preached. A lot of letters and a lot of stories, are, 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 they kind of lay themselves out to be preached. They lay themselves out. They're self-contained. Uh, they've got these like beginning and end caps and things. And Romans doesn't really do that well. In fact, it's not meant to be like that. It is a book. All the chapters are meant to be read as one, as this letter, as this one piece. And to understand the whole of it, you have to actually understand all of its pieces. So what I mean by that is you really can't understand the end of chapter 1 without getting into chapter 3. Because we don't actually really meet Jesus until Romans 3.20. And you can't really understand Romans 3 without 6 and 9. And 9 makes no sense without 12. So preaching through this is a challenge because what we like to do is sort of self-contained in these little places, but we have to understand the breadth of what's going on um, to really grasp it. So we're going to be wrestling with that. The second thing that makes it really hard is that Romans deals with some of the most complicated and nuanced theological issues in all of Scripture, and Paul makes no apologies for it. He dives headlong into some of the most complicated pieces of theological kind of um, exploration that you could possibly find. And that's great, and I love that, but it's hard to do on Sunday morning, right? It's hard to talk about the deep ins and outs of predestination or of eschatology or of, you know, the philosophy of the Trinity on a Sunday morning in the windows that we have. It's a book that seems to be meant to be studied, like on a Monday afternoon or a Tuesday night when you get some people together and you just parse it out. Well, Sunday mornings don't really lean that way very easily, so it makes it a little bit challenging. But we've never really shied away from those difficult kind of nuances in theology anyway. It's just a a different animal to kind of, of preach it. And then finally, it's this piece where Paul does a lot of asking questions, and he actually doesn't always answer those questions. In fact, a lot of Paul's response to some of the complicated things that he brings up is, well, that's just the mystery of God which is amazing and awesome. But on Sunday, when you're looking for that tiny little nugget to walk out of here with and preaching is kind of geared towards application and what we walk away with, it makes the unanswered questions really hard. And we're going to leave some Sundays going, man, I don't really know what to do with that. 
Um, but that's part of wrestling with and uh, navigating through Scripture. So, but I will tell you this, Romans is incredible. It's an unbelievable book. In fact, it's probably the most important kind of theological book that we have. It lays out the gospel from beginning to end, and it tackles all the complicated pieces there within. It is an incredible book. It's actually a picture of God's glory on full display through the person of Jesus Christ. So we're excited about getting into it, but we're going to need you to kind of bear with us as we work through these things together. Uh, it's going to build on each other. It's a hard one to just sort of show up on a random Sunday once a year and just be like, oh, that makes all kinds of sense. You're going to have to kind of journey with us in this. But it's, it's something that we're really excited about. It Because, again, our end goal is not to entertain you or not to have you kind of have a church that you're like, man, I, I really identify with that guy. It makes me laugh or cry or whatever it is. It's more just like I just, we just want you to know God's word. We want you to understand it and have this deep love affair with it. So we love preaching like that, and I've kind of mentioned that a little bit last week. But those are some of the things. But the book of Romans as a whole is different than all of Paul's other letters. Most of Paul's other letters are written to churches that he has a relationship with. He knows them. In fact, we just got through a book of Ephesians, right? We spent about a year or so doing Ephesians. That book, right, Paul wrote, that letter he wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he knew them so well. He had spent three years in Ephesus teaching them on a daily basis. So when he writes his letter, it's like writing to this old friend. And he writes to this old friend, but he's really pointed in how he writes them. It's like how you'd talk to someone you haven't seen in years, a college roommate that you spent so much time with that you loved and cared for. You just catch up, and there you are. And you can say pointed things, and they get it because they know your heart. In the church, in the book to the Galatians, Paul writes some very pointed things, and he calls them out on some heretical things they're exposed to. But he can do it in this way because he has this relationship with them. And the letter to the church in Philippi, he just loves them so much. Romans is different because Paul doesn't know them. He's actually never met them. Paul has never been to Rome. He's writing a letter to a church and to a people that he's never met. And he tells us this explicitly multiple times. In fact, throughout the letter to the Romans, he's going to tell them how much he longs to visit them, how much he's tried to visit them, how much he continues to try to visit them. And then the very end, in chapter 15 of the book, he's going to say, my plan, since I haven't been able to get to you yet, is to make a fourth journey. And on my way to go to Spain to take the gospel, I plan to spend some time with you, and I'm excited about it. So it's different because Paul doesn't know them. And that might be why we get such an incredible, deep kind of theological exploration of the gospel because Paul doesn't assume anything. He starts with this incredible introduction and he leads through every nuanced thought and verse of the gospel that could possibly be out there, including all the theological complications there within, and he addresses all of it. And so because of that, we get this incredible, incredibly complete systematic theology that Paul lays out as a preparation for his journey to Rome. Like, before I get there, make sure you know this is kind of what he's saying, or hear this, so that when I arrive, I can love you and that we are going to be on the same page. Now, we know that Romans is written somewhere between 58, 56 AD, somewhere in that window. Paul was returning from his third missionary journey. Um, so he had been all over the known world. This was his third time. And he was returning from Ephesus to Jerusalem with an offering that was supposed to go to the starving and poor and impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul tells the Romans, I was actually going to head up towards Rome, but I feel personally responsible to take this offering to Jerusalem. So I'm going to drop it off 
And then I'm going to immediately come and spend time with you. So we know he writes it most likely from Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem to let them know that he is certainly coming. But before he gets there, he wants them to hear a few things. We know that the church in Rome was predominantly Gentile. What that means is that they were predominantly non-Jewish. The majority of the believers there were Roman, which means they did not have a Jewish background or a Jewish history. They didn't have an understanding of the law or Moses or any of these things. Anything that they were going to know or learn about that was going to be because they were taught that by either one of the leaders there that was in the church or by Paul himself. But there was no working background of God's bigger biblical redemptive picture. And that's part of what Paul's going to do in Romans as he's addressing this purely Gentile church, reminding them how important the whole of Scripture is, right? But we do know there's also a Jewish population. It's small, but Paul will address it periodically. So we've got this mixture of kind of what Paul's churches typically are, predominantly Gentile, but with an important and kind of strong minority of Jewish people. And so Paul begins in this place of basically inner himself. And I told you last week, the introduction is actually quite long. It's actually 20-something verses. Paul does this introduction. It doesn't take us four weeks to get through just the introduction to his letter. We spent the first part talking about the seven verses last week. We learned about Paul's authority. We learned about his purpose and his ministry. We talked about Paul introducing the Romans of the gospel and what the implications of that gospel was. Well, this morning, we're going to kind of take that to the next logical step, and Paul's going to introduce his heart to the Romans. He's going to get a little bit less kind of um, empirical, and he's going to get a little bit more feely with them, and he's going to tell them essentially why he loves them um, before he kind of jumps into and off the cliff of like really deep and, and big things. He's going to expose his heart a little bit. So this morning what we're going to see is we're going to look at three verses, 8, 9, and 10, and we're going to talk about Paul's heart for the Romans. So I said this last week, we are going to be in, and we always will be every Sunday for the rest of our lives, we'll be in the Word every single Sunday. So bring your Bible. If you got one at home, bring it. If you don't, we have these incredibly giant new ones that are sitting right there. Um, They are huge, and they are large print. I know, it's a real big deal, right? And so... um, Again, it's, it, there's, there was, as Daniel said, there was a buzz this morning when people came in. It doesn't take a lot to get us excited around here. <laughs> um, so take one with you, ride in it. You're welcome to keep that orange one. Um, they make more. And so um, in some giant, you know, profit grab, they printed more than one Bible. And so um, take that one with you if you want to. But bring it each week. We're going to be in it. There won't be a single Sunday that we aren't. If there is, just leave uh, go find a church that, that teaches scripture. So um, that being said, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Romans uh, 1, 8 through 10 together. Lord, what a privilege um, to talk about your word. I am no expert. Um, I'm just an ordinary guy who has been saved by an extraordinary God. And Lord, I pray that what you will do is that you will uh, let us um, exposit this text together. And we'll teach through it, um, and that you ultimately will be the revealer of truth. That from uh, the first day that we start through our last breath of teaching this book, God, you would be thoroughly in it. Um, Lord, that you would teach us where we need to be taught, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, that we would wrestle with some challenging things, that we would come face to face with our own sin and our need for a Savior, and that all those things in between, you would just move in our lives. We pray as a church, Lord, that we would be subject to your word, um, that we wouldn't be moved by culture, that we wouldn't be 
um, tempted to dance with what is popular, but instead to run headlong into the truth and the authenticity of your word and stand firm and even when it's difficult. And when we run into places in your word, Lord, that are hard to hear, let us ask ourselves why, and then let's dive in deeper. Lord, we pray that you would be the revealer of truth this morning and every week that we gather. Take a moment in your own heart as you just sit here, as you prepare to just study God's word a little bit and just ask him to teach your heart. Like whatever that might mean, whatever you need to to just sort of have peeled away or whatever God wants to speak to you this morning, just ask him to, uh, to teach you and that you would be willing to receive it. And take a moment as we do each week, and let's pray for the people around us. Uh, if you're here for the first time, it's, we do this each week because we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. We want to remind ourselves that everything unfolds on Sunday morning is not really about you, but that you want to be someone that sees the growth in other people, that you care deeply enough about your brothers and sisters that you would want God to move in their lives. So take a moment and pray for your spouse or maybe somebody sitting beside you, or if you're here for the first time, maybe someone you don't even know. Just God move in them. Uh, draw them closer to you. Lord, if they're struggling with something, I pray that you would calm their hearts. Like whatever it is, just whisper. The Lord lay something on your heart for somebody, pray for them. But take a moment and pray for the people around you this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We release all of our thoughts, any kind of preconceived notions that we have. We ask that you would just settle them to the bottom and that you would be our teacher. We ask you to reveal truth to your Holy Spirit. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and so we don't take that lightly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up in the second little part of Paul's introduction. We're going to be in this introduction for quite a few weeks now. It's going to go all the way down through, I guess, probably... 20, maybe 19, he'll do this introduction. We spent the first part of last week looking at the first seven verses. This morning we're going to look at the next three as Paul gets a little bit more personal and about as personal as he gets. He doesn't get real personal in this letter. It's not a whole lot of lovey-dovey and like kissy pie. He just tells them essentially, this is who I am, but I am going to tell you here why I care so much about you. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. So we're going to look at Paul's heart a little bit and kind of break that out. But this is what he says in Romans 1, 8 through 10. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. So Paul transitions out of this introduction of basically saying, hey, this is who I am, this is my authority, this is my purpose, this is the gospel that I bring, and this is the implications of that gospel that we talked about all that last week, into this sort of change where he basically gets a little personal with them and he tells them how he longs to be with them and how thankful he is for them and how he kind of swears that he loves them and prays for them and he kind of exposes his heart to them for just a moment. And what we see in here are a couple of things. One, we're going to see Paul's thankful heart. We're going to see Paul take an oath, which is interesting. And then we're going to see Paul kind of begin to let them know about his prayer for them. All wrapped up in those short little verses. 
Now, Romans is interesting because there's a lot of pieces of it that we can look at and we can just kind of breeze through and just say, hey, that's a pretty cool introduction. Paul says he cares about him, he prays for him, he's proud of him, he loves him. That's good. Let's keep going. But Romans deserves to be paused on and pondered and looked at because what Paul's actually saying in these verses is much, much deeper than what it looks like just on the surface. Remember, Paul's words are chosen and crafted. They're intentional. This is not a group of people that knows him. So every sentence is laid out with intentionality to expose either the God of the universe, the gospel, or even Paul's heart himself because they don't know him. And so he starts this introduction by basically telling them how thankful he is. I thank my God through Jesus Christ every time I remember you, essentially, because your faith is being reported all over the world. It's a pretty remarkable statement, actually. But Paul's thankfulness is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because, well, Paul's just a thankful person, and he should be. In fact, as believers, we really should be clothed in thankfulness. Right? Life is not easy. It doesn't always go our way. Things aren't always perfect. It, you know, in fact, you may be sitting here this morning struggling with things that are unfolding in your own life, whether it's your, your marriage or your work or relationships or you're struggling with being a parent or wanting to be a parent or not wanting to be a parent anymore, or whatever it is, right? Financial struggles, this or that, or just feeling overwhelmed with life. Look, life is full of that. But the believer is thankful at heart for one singular reason. And that singular reason is that we are promised that we will not get what we deserve. That's the root of thankfulness for the believer. It's not that, hey, life is going to be great and going to be good. It's the believer understands that through Jesus Christ, we are not going to get what we deserve. See, we deserve, and Paul's going to lay this out for us very specifically in chapter 3, we deserve to die. Now, it's not popular to say that. It's not going to win a whole bunch of people. It's not going to grow the church by a thousand people by next Sunday when you say that as People, sinners, people that have rooted their lives in the kind of fighting against the enemy nature that we are towards God, that we deserve death. But that is the basic premise of Romans, that we deserve, because of our sin, to die, to spend eternity separated from God, which the Bible explicitly calls hell. It's what you deserve. It's what I deserve. But in Christ... Right, Our sin has been exchanged for God's glory, and therefore we do not get what we deserve. And no matter what unfolds in this life, nothing will take that truth away. So the believer is thankful, not because life is hard or we just put on this sort of, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make this Jesus-flavored lemonade. Like, it's not this weird optimism. It's like this thing that says, yeah, life is still really crappy, but I know that no matter what happens, no one can take my eternal security. That I know no matter how hard this is, like there is a glory that waits for him because of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that. Paul's life is really hard. If you were with us when we studied the book of Acts, we took two years and studied the book of Acts. If you remember how difficult Paul's life was, especially towards the end, we, Romans is in that same breath. Because Paul's writing before all these things are about to transpire, Paul has no idea what's coming. But his life gets really hard. But Paul's really thankful, and he's thankful because at the core he knows he's not getting what he deserved. But he tells the church in Rome how thankful he is for them. And why? Because their faith has been reported all over the world. Now think about that. Like for now, in, in our day today, it's easy to share information. Like 
Word spreads like wildfire, right? Social media fuels that. We have phones. You can text people. Like, you hear things, like, before they happen. Like, we wrestle with this with our own children. You know that when, when Cooper, my 18-year-old, when he gets a bad grade in school, which not that often, he's a decent child, but when it happens, they post it. And I know immediately that as soon as that teacher enters whatever that grade is or that zero, it shows up on my phone. Now, that's how fast information travels. When you grew up or when I grew up or if you're at all in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you had this incredible window of time <laughs> to fix, remedy, or address whatever said situation is before mom and dad had to sign that manila envelope, right? So you saw your grade as a launching place for negotiations of which you could debate, try and make up work, deal with whatever before you ever had to go home. Or if there was no fixing it, you had the entire bus ride to create your story, right? The wolves that came through the school door chased me down as I was saving the younger children. You know, whatever it was, whatever lie you were concocting, you had this entire instantly, right? So one of the big conversations we had with Cooper was he essentially looked at Meredith and I said, when those grades post, please don't text me immediately and tell me how upset you are. Like, let me have a chance to fix it. That's how fast information travels, right? Word back then didn't travel that fast. It was hard. It went by voice, by word, by, tra- by, by boat, by wagon, by whatever. But word had gotten around the known world that the Romans' faith was incredible. Now, why would that faith be different than other places? Well, maybe it wasn't. But what we do know about Rome is that Rome was a really difficult place to be a believer. It was a difficult place because I mentioned last week the Romans hated Christians. I mean, with the deep and real vitriol, they hated believers. And they hated them for one reason. You remember what that reason is? It's not that they believed in Jesus Christ as God's son. It's not that they believed in Yahweh, the creator God. It's that they believed that that God was the only God. See, the Romans were great with you believing in God or gods, as long as you believed and acknowledged in all of them. When they conquered a people group, they would just adopt that religious system into their own, and there was room for the pantheon of gods, including their own Caesar, who was to be worshipped. The problem with that is that from a biblical perspective, God says no. He says, it's just me. And don't worship any others and don't acknowledge any others and have none before me because I am the one true God. And the Romans hated that. And the fact that the believers wouldn't acknowledge that Nero or whoever Caesar was in the other times was God was a huge problem. In fact, they were killing them by the hundreds. They were putting them into gladiator rings. They were having them torn apart by wild animals. It was a terrible place to be a believer. So when we talk about their faith, it's not just like, hey, we're a group of people here coming on a Sunday morning. We're just trusting the Lord, and we all go out to lunch together. We're talking about the idea that if you said you believed in Jesus, you were going to probably die. And that word of their boldness had spread around the known world, and it had gotten back to Paul. He had heard about their faith. And so he tells them, right, I am thankful through Jesus Christ because your faith has been reported all over the world. 
Now, there's two things saying that does, right? It not only just proclaims Paul's thankfulness as just a thankful person, but it has two things. One, it encourages them, and two, it shows them that he loves them. Think about what an encouragement it would be if you're a Roman person, right? A believer, a Roman believer that has never met Paul, but has heard about Paul, right? Because Paul's made all these missionary journeys. The gospel is in Rome because of Paul. He may not have been there himself, but somebody that he shared the gospel with took it to Rome. They've heard about Paul. They know who he is. Paul's a part of it. He's an apostle. He's part of the, the movement that came out of Jerusalem. Like Paul is known, of course. And so what an encouragement it would be to receive a letter from Paul, the Paul, who says, I'm grateful for you. Your faith is incredible. I mean, letters were hard to write. They were actually hard to write, but they were even much harder to deliver. It wasn't like writing happy birthday on someone's Facebook wall and being like, hey, I'm really thankful for you. Happy birthday. I mean, we're talking about taking time to ride on some weird animal skin to give it to a guy that says, take this 3,000 miles and don't die or get robbed or lose it or get rained on or smear the ink, right? So when that shows up in Rome, 1,000 miles away, and they unroll it and it's in Paul's hand and he signed it and he introduced himself. And he went to the trouble to write it and to have it delivered and for them to read it. And the first thing it says in there is, this is who I am and I am so encouraged by you. Would have been like this B12 shot to the soul, right? Like, okay, we're doing this right. Like, we're going to be okay no matter what we face, like there are others out there that encourage us and support us and believe in us. It would have been incredible, right? But it also, even though he doesn't say it explicitly, it shows them how much he loves them. Paul's gone through a pretty remarkable transformation, right? Remember Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9, Paul full-on hated believers with all that he was. He couldn't stand them. In fact, he had a letter from the high priest that was given to him to go and arrest and or capture and then put on trial to have executed anyone that he came across that claimed to be part of the way, which was the Christian movement. Not the leaders, not the higher-ups, but any breathing person that claimed to follow Jesus, Paul had the authority not only to arrest, but to essentially have executed. He hated them. They were a threat to him and his way of life. And Paul sets out on this mission, a misguided mission as it was in Acts chapter 9, to go and eradicate the earth of all of these people. He hated them. Well, Acts chapter 9, right? Incredible thing happens. The Lord shows up, knocks Paul to the ground, blinds him essentially, leads him into this town and says, you're going to wait here for three days while I pretty much ready you for your new call. Sure enough, this guy by the name of Ananias who doesn't want to go and touch Paul because Paul's the most dangerous man in the known world, but God tells him to. Ananias does it and goes up and tells Saul. He says, Brother Saul, God has called you to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And it says that scales fell from his eyes, something like that. And Paul's life changes immediately. That guy that hated these believers, that guy that was doing everything he could to eradicate them, to wipe them out, has just written them a letter telling them essentially how much he cares about them. He's never even met them. How can you love someone so deeply that you've never met? Well, that is wrapped up in what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
So this thankfulness does two real things, right? It's this moment of encouragement, this moment of love. And it got me thinking, right? And hopefully you. Are you an encourager of people? Like what links do you go to to encourage the people around you? Are you an encourager to your spouse? Do you breathe life into their soul? Or are you constantly reminding them what they aren't and what they don't do? Are you an encourager to your children? Do you take time to do things that matter? Like, I'm not saying you have to write letters, but little things go a real long way. Phone calls, time, lunches, coffee, investment in people. Are you an encourager to people's soul? And do your actions, do they demonstrate your love to people, right? Like when people have an encounter with you, where they walk away going, he doesn't even, she doesn't even really know me, but it's evident that they care about me. See, part of what it means to be a follower of Christ is that we love people because Christ compels us, not because they earn or merit our love. No one will ever really do that well. We love people because Christ compels us to, because he loved us when we were unlovable. There are a lot of people in your life that we're called to love that are either unlovable or really hard. But as followers of Christ, we're called to love them in a way that they know that that love is true and they know that that love is real. Even people that you haven't met. As believers, we are kindred, connected spirits and hearts with other believers around the world and we are called to be men and women of encouragement, right? This is what Paul's doing in the first little verse in this introduction. He's basically saying, I'm grateful for you. Your faith is incredible. Keep going. I love you, right? And they've been really powerful to hear. And then Paul does something else. He actually doubles down on this thankful thing by taking an oath. It's really kind of strange right there, but he kind of swears by it. This is what he says in verse 9. Look at that. He says, not only am I grateful and thankful and all those kind of things. He says this. He says, verse 9, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. So he says, I'm moved by your faith. I love you essentially. And as God is my witness, like I swear to you, as God is my witness, I remember you constantly in my prayers. He doubles down and makes an oath. Now, for those of you that are Bible scholars, which should be the majority of, of you in here, there's a little bit of a weird hiccup there, right? If you've paid attention at all to the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 and on, Jesus explicitly says, do not swear oaths to God, to heaven, or by anything. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not do it. Yet, right here in front of us, Paul does it. And actually, Paul does it a few other times in Scripture as well. Now, these are the things that we could easily just bypass and go, well, you know, I mean, didn't really apply to Paul. Or as I read a couple of times throughout the week, like, Paul didn't really take an oath. He would never disobey Jesus. I'm like, I think you're missing the whole point, people. Like, scholars are the worst, right? Ignore most of them. Because there is something here that Paul's doing. He is swearing by God that he prays for them. And he does it for, I think, a really good reason. And he does it differently than what Jesus is saying. Now, here's the thing that's happening. Let me give you the problem, and then I'll give you the the purpose. The problem is this. The Old Testament actually tells the Israelites to make oaths and swear by God. They said, basically, become a people that are dependent upon God, that don't bear false witness, 
So if you take an oath, take it and swear by who God is, right? That's what the Old Testament says. Well, like pretty much all things, people find a way of corrupting and destroying God's great purposes and making it for themselves. And the Pharisees were really good at this. And so what they had done is they had taken this command to be men and men of their word, right, to not bear false witness, and to take oaths, and they have figured out a way to make promises. Some can be kept and others can be broken. And so what they did was they parsed out that rule to basically say that if you took an oath for things like, if you swore an oath facing Jerusalem, right, then it was something you had to honor. But if you took an oath on Jerusalem, then you could break it. Or if you swore by the temple, you could break it. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, that was unbreakable, right? If you swore by the altar in the Holy of Holies, you could break that oath. But if you swore by the gift on the altar, that was an unbreakable oath. This is what the Pharisees had done. They had created a system that served themselves by taking the word of God and perverting it to something that actually helped them. It's the same reason that Jesus has the interaction with them when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees are like, hey, who's our neighbor? We'll define that. And Jesus says, no, you won't. Neighbor is everyone. And they're like, but is it really? Yes, it is, really. Well, this is what's happened. And we've taken the word of God and we've created a system in which it serves us which is not all that different than what we've done today. We've taken the word of God, the things that we don't like, the things that don't fit into our paradigm, whether that's human sexuality or anything other things we've talked about in Ephesians, and we've just turned it into a way that serves us. We've parsed out a nuance of things that we don't like to try and put them in a category where they still work within our worldly paradigm, and it's a problem. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, be men and women that don't need to swear an oath. Be so truthful that your word is your word. The Essenes, which was a sect of Judaism, and there were was, there was several of these sects. There were the scribes and the zealots. Well, the Essenes was one of these groups of Jewish people, and they had a saying that Josephus records. It basically says this. If you're not believable enough, right, that you have to swear an oath to God, then you're already condemned. Because here's the thing. Pretty much you have anybody in your life. You got any, if somebody in your life comes up to you and he goes, hey, did you do this or do you have this or will that work? And they say, no, no, I swear to God. You're like, okay. Well, I already don't believe you. Like, that's crazy. Like, that's a little over the top. No, I swear, I swear, I swear. You're like, okay, for crying out loud, just say I didn't do it, man. On my mother's grave, I laid down, chopped my eyes out. You're like, okay, no one believes you? Well, that's what the Essenes are essentially saying. If you have to make an oath, then uh, what is it? No one, you're already lost, man. Like, be so truthful. But that's not really what Paul's doing. And Jesus and Paul are actually doing something very different. Jesus is basically saying, don't pervert the word of God. Be a person of truth. And Paul's saying this, you don't know me. I know you don't know me. But what I'm telling you, I want you to believe so deeply that God I've given my entire life to preaching to. I want him to bear witness to the fact that I pray for you. See, Paul's not making an oath that he's some great guy. He's not making an oath that he's like, hey, listen, you can believe me. All these words are true. I swear to God. What he's basically saying is that I know that you don't know this to be true about me, but I pray for you all the time, and the God that I bear witness to knows it. What Paul's essentially saying is, I'm a man of my word, and when I tell you that I pray for you constantly, I mean it. Which, of course, gets me thinking again, like we are called to be men and women of our word, and we pervert the truth all the time. We pervert the truth in our marriages and in our homes and in our life and in our work life. And culture's basically told us that 
we can do whatever we need as long as it serves ourselves. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying, don't do. He's saying, don't do it. And so what Paul's basically telling in this oath is like, I'm a man of my word, and I lay my life down for the Lord, and I want you to know that I have truly, constantly praying for you. Which means to me that Paul really is praying deeply for the Romans who he's never met. He's fighting for them in prayer. When's the last time you spent time praying for a people group you've never met? Heck, most of us have a hard enough time praying for our husbands or our wives or our children. Somebody says, hey, will you pray for me? And the first thing we say is absolutely, and then we never pray for them. And I mean never by literally never. We just give a head nod as a courtesy, but very rarely, if at all. Now, again, if we're in the context of a life group or a Bible study, then sure. But in passing, we very rarely follow through on that. Pray for me. Okay, you know I will. And then we very rarely do. And that's the people that we know and love. Paul's doing prayer battle and life for a people group that he's never met. And he swears by it. So he's got this oath. And then he finally introduces us to this little piece of his prayer, right? So we've got his thankfulness, we've got his oath, and then we have this little piece of his prayer. <clears throat> Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says this. He says that, well, it kind of picks up in the middle of his thought, preaching the gospel of his son, my witness. I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now that by God's will, at last, that the way may be open for me to come to you. So this is what Paul says. My prayer, as I pray for you constantly, and I'm sure he prayed for other things for them, of course, but he tells them this one thing that he prays for is that he prays that the way may be open that he might come to them. Now we know that to be true. Paul's actually going to say multiple times in Romans that he wants to come and that he's tried to come but hasn't been able to. But he says, I'm praying that God would open the door by his will that I may come to you. Now, there's a couple of things here in this prayer that I find really, really remarkable that you kind of have to dive in and look at a little bit. And the first is really this idea that Paul never really doubted that God was in control, right? He, he just sort of has this underlying feeling that God is going to prepare a way or God is not going to prepare a way, but I'm going to pray that, that he opens those doors. Like God's in control. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do it on my own. So Paul had this sort of firm belief that God was in control of his movements and in control of his life. And there's never a doubt there. Like, you know, I'm not real sure. It's more just like, I'm going to pray that God opens the door and we're going to trust God's will, right? We've got that. We also see that, that Paul, in that sort of trusting of God's will, he wasn't passive or idle. And this is kind of important, I think, because what we do know about Paul is that when he prays for God to open a way, he doesn't then just return to Jerusalem and sit in his hut for three years and wait for someone to come and tell him that God has opened the way. Paul was not passive in the way that he approached the things that he felt like he was supposed to do. He was active in it. So what I mean by that is this. When Paul prays that God would open a door for him to go to Rome, Paul tries multiple times to actually go to Rome. In fact, the book of Romans, we're going to see him say there were several times he tried, but he couldn't get there at that time. And even now that he wants to come, he's being stopped by the fact that he needs to be the one that takes the offering to Jerusalem. Paul was not passive. A lot of us, we come to a door that we ask God to open and it seems closed and we kind of gently rattle the knob and then we retreat into solitude thinking that's too hard. I can't walk through that. That door is closed. Paul was kind of of the impression that you tried to knock it down a few times 
And then when you got the full picture that the Holy Spirit had closed it, you wait or you move on or you pursue a different path. This happens in Acts chapter 16. Paul wants to go to Asia to preach. And so he tries multiple times. And it doesn't tell us how, but it says when he got to the border, the Holy Spirit stopped him. So Paul retreated today, went back in. Holy Spirit stopped him. Paul tried multiple times and then finally said, Holy Spirit's not letting us go. That door's closed Then we're going to keep going on. We're going to keep preaching. Paul didn't retreat, head back to Jerusalem, canceled the entire missionary journey. This is way too hard. I can't do it. God just stopped that door from being open, so we're going to pursue the next one as we pray that God would prepare a way. That was how Paul approached his Christian faith. And there's something remarkable in that, right? Because what did Paul, God already call Paul to do? He called him to preach the gospel. Paul wasn't going to retreat from that. There are things in Scripture that God calls us to do that we use this concept of, I need to pray and see if God opened the door. When God has already said, do it, and we just don't want to face the resistance. God tells you to tell the people around you about Jesus. That's explicitly in his word. Go and proclaim the gospel. It is actually the Great Commission. You do not need to stop and pray to see if God will open a door for you to talk about Jesus. But we use that as an excuse because we're petrified of the resistance. Yes, sometimes there will be hard hearts and God will close doors and that happens and it's happening to Paul. But he doesn't quit or give up. He knows the deeper call to take the gospel and so he's just going to keep going until the Holy Spirit says not here and not now. Paul was impassive or idle. If God is calling you to do something and you feel it in your soul, you don't need to spend three years gathering all your people to pray that God would open. He's already called you to it. Start walking, start moving, start speaking. When God closes that door, you'll know. And then what you do is you move to the next door. You don't go sit in your house for three years and wait for God to drop the lottery ticket in your lap or whatever. Because here's what's remarkable. Paul ends up in Rome, doesn't he? Do you know how Paul ends up in Rome? Here's Paul's plan. Paul's like, he tells us in chapter 15, I'm coming to you. I'm going to make a stop and spend time with you on my way to Spain. Paul's fourth missionary journey idea is I'm going to Spain. Now, for us, we could probably even grasp, if you're familiar at all with sort of geography, I was going to say geology, if you know your rocks, if you're familiar with geography, Spain's pretty far from Jerusalem. That ain't an easy job. That's a long way. But Paul's going to go, and he's going to go by way of Rome, and he's going to spend time with him. That's his plan. But he's praying right here. Right? What he says is, I will only do it in accordance with God's will, but that's what I'm praying for, and that's my plan. Well, God acknowledges that plan, but God has his own movement. Paul ends up in Rome, but he ends up in Rome three years later as a prisoner. Not on a boat headed to Spain, not with a bunch of guys going to go eat paella. He literally ends up as a prisoner. And that journey as a prisoner is brutal. Paul is arrested. He's taken from city to city for months at a time. He's finally put on a boat where that boat is shipwrecked and he's bit by snakes where he arrives in Rome. And you know what happens when he arrives in Rome? He waits for two years under arrest before he even is allowed to speak to Nero. And we don't even know that he gets to. The book of Acts ends this. It actually ends right here, right above chapter 1. It ends by saying this. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house in Rome, and he welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without exception, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts ends. 
What? He didn't go before Nero and make this great defense, and then all of a sudden the Roman Empire comes toppling down. Paul literally, essentially ends the book of Acts two years arrested in Rome. We don't have any idea that he ever met with the believers there. I'm sure some of them came by to see him, but he certainly didn't gather with them every day like he did with the church in Ephesus and talk and teach. So Paul was not going, as he prayed for God's will, was not going to just sit idly by. But when God's will happened and it wasn't quite what he wanted, Paul finds great joy in it anyway. He's not mad. He's not angry at God that his plan didn't go like he wanted. Like, God, how could you? I was going to come through here. We're going to teach. I was going to Spain. He just joyfully sits under house arrest and preaches to anybody that comes by. God accepted, and the reason for that is that Paul accepted and trusted in the providence of God. Now, the providence of God is a bit of a complicated, nuanced theological idea, but essentially this is kind of what it means. It just means that you believe, and we believe as believers, that God is constantly and always at work. That he didn't just take the earth, spin it into motion, set its natural laws, and push it out into outer space and say, let's see what happens, right? But God is always constantly moving, which means that as Paul was praying to go to Rome, God had this bigger redemptive plan and was using Paul as part of this story, and the shipwrecks and the snake bites and all these complicated things were part of God's movement, and Paul trusted and believed in that, that God got him to Rome was not a mistake and that God didn't punish him, but that God's plan all along was that this is how we would get there, and therefore Paul found peace in it. And we know all that because it's just deeply wrapped up in this idea, God, I pray that you would make a way. Not my own way. I mean, I have my own idea, and I'm going to try that. But if you shut it down, I'll go whichever way you want me to. And so he essentially says, I'm subservient to God's will. Thy will be done. The providence of God is really this thing that kind of revolves around three pieces. God created everything, right? God is in control of all things, and God governs all things. That means that God made it, there is nothing that is out of his control, and that he is fully at work in your daily life. As believers, we're called to trust in that providence. We're called to not just believe that God is big and mighty, but that God is big and mighty in me. And that what I'm walking through, however difficult that circumstance is, is not outside of God's plan. He's not surprised by it. He's not worried about me. God is moving for his purpose and his glory, even in the difficult season that we're in. We're in a brutal season as parents, or we're in a brutal season as a family, or I'm struggling with this medical diagnosis I've been dealing with. Like, that's truly, I don't believe outside of God's plan. I believe he's still working and can work and will work for his glory. And so, Lord, whatever I'm facing and dealing with, your will be done, is what Paul is saying. And he's telling the church in Rome, right, that this is what I believe and what I pray for you. So wrapping all this up in this little picture is in those little verses, here's kind of a glimpse of what we see, right? Paul's thankful, and it should be evidenced in all of our lives that we should be a thankful people because we don't get what we deserve. No matter what comes at the end of the day through Jesus Christ, no matter how hard your life is, there's reason to be grateful. You don't have to be grateful for the crap you walk through, but you can be grateful that it doesn't end with you getting what you deserve. We have this eternal promise and this abundant life that God has promised us And therefore, there should be gratitude and thankfulness at the core of our heart. If you don't have that, ask the Lord to remedy it. God, why am I not grateful? Why am I not thankful? Why am I not content? What am I missing? Ask the Lord. 
Be an encourager and a lover of people. Be someone that takes time out of your own selfish, daily, busy life to speak words of life into somebody else. And oftentimes we're really good at doing this to people that aren't close to us and we're terrible at doing it to the people that are the closest. You know the person that needs your encouragement the most is the one that you live with. Whether they're your children, your roommate, your spouse, the people that you spend the most time with are typically the ones that need to know you love them the most. And they're the ones we assume already know it because we never really expose them to it. Be an encourager of people. Take time to write a letter, make a phone call. Do something that tells people you care about them. And then be a lover of people, even people you don't know. Have a bigger picture when it comes to the kingdom of God. And we have missionaries who support all over the world. We've spotlighted them every once a, once a month, all last year. We spotlighted every missionary that we support. You don't know them. Brandon and I know them a little bit. Have you ever prayed for one of them? We have two missionaries that are working to take the gospel that people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in France. Have you ever prayed for them? Be a person whose word is true, like really true. Be someone that people believe, right? Be honest, be truthful, be authentic. And then in the midst of all this, right, as you think about your own life, be someone who trusts that God is in control. Be someone that because of that, you're going to be persistent in your call to follow the Lord and you're going to trust in God's providence. When life does not go great, when things are hard, when the the answers don't come as you wish they would, and when you end up in Rome in a way you didn't want to, lean on Paul's words and trust the will of God. Believe that God is always at work, that he has something bigger and better, and that he might be glorified, and that everything in the universe is not about you. That just because you don't like it doesn't mean that God isn't in it. Find ways to be grateful and thankful and trust the Lord. And that ultimately, what we might be able to whisper to our souls and the people around us is, God, thy will be done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you just for these moments to gather in this place to talk a little bit about your word and uh, parse out these verses. And we're thankful for men like Paul, who were not perfect. They were flawed, but they were such powerful examples of what faith looked, lived out looks like. Lord, I want to be a man who is grateful I want to be an encourager and a lover of people. I want to be a man of my word. I want to trust you in control and your providence. I, I want to believe all those things. And I'm not who I want to be all the time. In fact, very seldom am I who I want to be. But I, I want to be someone that honors you in that way. And I know that each of us do. And so, Lord, challenge us this morning. Make us men and women that honor you with our words and with our life. Make us men and women that trust that you are sovereign and in control and that you are always at work. But at the end of the day, Lord, let us trust in your will over our own will, in your way over our own way, that we would subject our hearts and our parenting skills and our marriage skills and our work skills and all those things just to you. For you are God. We belong to you. Thy will be done. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. All the earth will shout.
cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. Sing that again. Ask for it. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. This is what he does. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore Great are you, 
there for a moment, sing of his greatness. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Once more from your hearts. This morning. So our prayer is that we walk out of here empowered by Paul's first words, some of these first words that he breathed in this letter, that we would be men and women that are, are truly grateful and thankful, that we'd be lovers and encouragers of people, that we'd be men and women of our word, that we would trust that God is in control and that he is always at work. Let these things sink deeply into your soul and go encouraged and walk out of here in peace. Amen. <laughs>